Hello and welcome. Legally Brief presents the Child Athlete Abuse Podcast. I'm your host, Judy Saunders. I'm a lawyer, a mother, and survivor. I work with survivors, competitive athletes, and their families who are confronting abuse. This podcast is for parents, survivors who are fed up, dealing with fear, and searching for answers. On today's episode, we will discuss when abusive coaching practices forces students to transfer from their college athletic programs. We're going to talk about four considerations that students should take when thinking of transferring and also some issues that are very timely to what's going on right now in our courts and in our culture. But before we get into our discussion, I hope you enjoy the podcast and the content, but do not ever let anything I say substitute for you contacting and speaking directly with a licensed attorney who knows and understands your unique circumstances. Nothing I say on this show, on this podcast, can create an attorney-client relationship. Past episodes of the podcast can always be found on my website, jsaunderslawfirm.com. And while you're there, have a look around. There are downloads that speak directly to survivors of abuse. They speak also to individuals that are dealing with matters in the criminal justice system. Sign up for the free newsletter so you'll be the first to know about new podcast episodes and other issues regarding the law. If you are ready to speak confidentially with an attorney to learn more about your options for confronting abuse, you can always schedule a call and a consultation at 212-709-8141. If anything that I say to you resonates, has meaning, or you think can be a help to a family, friend, or a survivor, please do not forget to share this episode. Also, it's important that you subscribe to the podcast. Leave me a review of the show. Leave a five-star rating. I read everything and I look forward to your comments. When you, as a student athlete, are considering transferring a program or you have a child that must leave their college program because of the abuse, it reminds me of a situation that I heard where student who had been playing in baseball for since the age of seven, now they were in college. The parents were always supportive of any athletic pursuit. Parents didn't mind the hectic travel schedule, the fees that had to be paid. And the student himself, let's call him Fisher, the student dedicated his time. He weight trained, he studied the game. By 10th grade, he was a serious contender for an NCAA athletic scholarship. And of course, he was thrilled. The student athlete was thrilled when he did get that college scholarship package. And for the most part, his parents were happy that he was happy, but they had been aware of older friends of Fisher that had gone on to the school and they were encountering some forms of verbal and emotional abuse. That was what was being heard in the community. But Fisher and his parents eventually rationalized that every situation is unique. Fisher himself was a mature student. He was a mature athlete and he could navigate any tough coaching situations. So it was decided that Fisher would sign with this athletic program. He had seen in the past throughout his career playing in middle school and high school, he had been the witness of 
coaches screaming or name calling, punishing players, you know, you having to do excessive conditioning when you didn't think that it was justified or for no cause. And so Fisher thought that that was something that he could take, that he could manage. Now, by the time that Fisher was in the sophomore year of this program, he went from just witnessing some of these things within now his current program to actual being directly impacted by the coach's verbal abuse, their emotional abuse. And that is what started Fisher and his family to thinking about what can we do? It went from Fisher being a highly motivated, great, skilled athlete to no longer enjoying the game, losing sleep, dreading practice, panic attacks, nausea, vomiting. He was really, his body was manifesting the symptoms and the signs that he's under distress and this is something that can't go on. Now, I just want to, for a moment, talk about another scenario, another situation. So we have Fisher or we have a student athlete that is directly observing and witnessing and being impacted by verbal and emotional abuse. But there's also other scenarios that would cause student athletes that would force them to have to transfer, to disrupt their lives. They're in an athletic program, all of the complexities that go along with that and have to transfer schools, think about funding now, think about new housing. This can be very disruptive. So what are some of the other situations where student athletes, well, we know that abuse can also come in the form of not only verbal and emotional, like Fisher, but it can also come in the form of a sexual nature. It could be sexual harassment. It can also be the form, come in the form of racial discrimination, implicit biases that would present themselves implicit and explicit. So it could be words that are offensive. It could be microaggressions, but it can also be implicit biases. Either it can be isolation, favoritism, racial slurs, and other comments. And this abuse also shows up in a third way. It could be a failure of student athletes to receive the education they deserve because they have become athletic laborers. They are no longer just athletes matriculating through college and playing a sport, but they now have become full-time workers. They're, They're practicing, they're training 40, 50, 60 hours a week, weight room, two a days in practice, And it's gotten to the point where they don't have the energy, the stamina, or the concentration to be able to commit to their academic studies. That, I submit, is also a form of abuse. Victoria Jackson in the Los Angeles Times published an article on January 4th, 2019. She wrote a piece, and I'll link to this in the notes. And the summary of this piece is that she had done research So it was based on factual research, and it was also based on her own personal experience that as a college D1 athlete, she was involved in a non-revenue generating sport. And because of that, she was able to take the more complex classes. She was able to dedicate more time to her studies, but she was able to have her education and have her future funded by what she characterized by black and brown bodies that were also division one athletes, but they had to dedicate their time 
in playing sports full-time as athletic laborers. These sports that they played were the majority, they were basketball and they were football, and they were in these Division I schools. And she was commenting that because of their nonstop labor, these students, black and brown students, were able to fund the athletic programs. She was able to get an athletic scholarship, but she had the time to dedicate to her studies that would then give her a future and the career that she needed after the athletic career, whereas these athletic laborers, they did not have that benefit. The term in what I'm describing, this form of abuse, has been known and has been described as the plantation system that's used by the big five college athletic programs. Among those big fives is the University of Texas, which recently has been publicly exposed because donors within the University of Texas who donate to this public university have been vocal or what they have told the officials at the University of Texas has been exposed. I don't know if they were personally vocal, but in essence, they were very clear that these individuals, the majority, 90% or more of which were African-Americans in the in the football and basketball programs, that they no longer wanted them to voice their opinions about politics, voice their opinions about having their image or likeness used. They wanted them to just play, to produce the revenue and entertain and play. This is a form of abuse for individuals. Sometimes when we look at student athletes on television, I know myself included, you see these individuals, they're tall, they're well physically developed, but we forget these are 17, maybe 16, 18 year olds. These are children. Albeit they're older, they can advocate for themselves. And many of them are advocating for themselves. Right now, you have an ongoing case in the United States Supreme Court where student athletes and the NAACP are litigating that very issue of whether students can be compensated for the use of their image, the use of their likeness, whether they should be compensated beyond the mere scholarship. And that's the discussion. I've actually written a piece. You can find that on the website. You can leave a comment there. I am happy to engage anyone in this discussion because I fall on the side that these individuals should be compensated for their labor. And if they're not, that is a form of abuse. But beyond that, they also should be able to be given the time to really take a deep dive into their studies because these athletic careers, we all know, do not last forever. While I'm on the subject of the University of Texas and the Texas educational system as a whole, as I'm recording this podcast, yesterday, the verdict of guilty was handed down in the Derek Chauvin trial. This was the officer who murdered George Floyd. I did some investigating because I often look at things not only through the lens of the law, but I also look at it through the lens of our child athlete. And this is what I found from my reading. A lot of it is me putting together the dots. I apologize in advance if this isn't 100% verified, but this is what I've drawn from the research that I've done. I do know and reading that George Floyd 
the young man that was murdered by the police officer, Derek Chauvin. We do know that he was not only a father, he was not only a brother, a friend. All of the reports, I spent hours reading this, report him to be an extremely affectionate, religious Christian. And he was also an accomplished student athlete. Now, small digression, when I look at the pictures of George Floyd, he's described as about six, seven, six, eight, a very large build. It makes me immediately think of, and during the whole course of seeing these videos, the murder, thinking about this, it reminded me, I always reflected on my personal, my brother, who himself is a tall African-American man, equally as gentle, as kind, has always been an amazing, affectionate brother. So it always, like so many other African-Americans, this murder, like so many others before us, and I'm going, go back to Dred Scott, go back to Emmett Till. These murders ring true and they, they punch you in the gut, they punch you in the heart because you not only see the, the cruelty and the pain and the suffering, but you see your brother, you see your father, my sons, my cousins. So that to me, I apologize. That's just one thing that I say. But going back now to what we know about Mr. Floyd and him being a student athlete there in Texas, we know that he went to uh, Yates High School. And when we think about this month of being Child Abuse Awareness Month, we think of also the many forms that it shows up. And a failure, an intentional failure in our educational system is abuse of children. We know that Mr. Floyd, when he was enrolled in the educational system in Texas, that when you look at the high school, the Yates High School that he went to, when you look at the area that he grew up in, the district and the neighborhood, we know that there are there were white leaders in Texas, school boards who intentionally failed young athletes like Mr. Floyd. They used a really intentional system to ensure that students and athletes like Mr. Floyd, who attended this Yates High School, they made it almost impossible for them to thrive, have meaningful professional and athletic careers. We know that these white leaders, they set up a very narrow path where students and athletes were so choked out of hope that they had to scramble and scrape and beg for any forms, any form where they can try to succeed. We know that the school system was a product of redlining. If you don't know what redlining is, read about that. We know that the school system was a part of failed public services. We know that the school system was a part of intentional forms of taxation where taxes could not be drawn to fund uh, schools where George Floyd went to. All of these things set up individuals like Mr. Floyd and so many other children in school districts across this country and athletes across this country. We set them up for intentional failure. And then we have the products where you have individuals like Mr. Floyd, other African-Americans searching for jobs, feeling as if they have to beg for just the smallest seat at the table. And that brings you to coming to the whole system. And I'm not even going to go into it on this show, but the whole system of athletic scholarships and how you feel that this is your only way. 
African-American athletes, football players, basketball players, other athletes, they feel that this is the only way out to provide for themselves, provide for their families. This should not be. And then to further enter a program and be forced out because of abuse, be it abuse because of discrimination, verbal, emotional, or sexual harassment, then you have that second blow after you've worked so hard to now have to transfer out because of that abuse. It can be too much. So I come back with that and I connect and I'm trying to show you the connection between the abuse of our children, the early athletic career, and Mr. Floyd to provide an example of how these abuses, how they directly affect our children, how these educational failures directly affect and are a forms of abuse for our children. So now that we've defined the forms of abuse, how they look like, how they show up in the lives of Mr. Floyd, how they show up in the lives of our athletes, and even the hypothetical facts that I was providing before of the baseball player, Fisher, who was accounting the the verbal and emotional abuse, what do you do about it? What are some considerations now you, the student athlete, you, the parents should be thinking about? One consideration is filing a complaint for abuse, for abusive coaching practices. And if you're considering that, you'll want to think about these things. Universities, like all systems, have a chain of command. And the chain of command can be both within and outside the athletic department. Instinctly, you have a fear that once you file a complaint, you speak with authority figure that now you're labeled. The student is labeled, the parent is labeled, they're troublemakers, and that you'll be frozen out of the sport and maybe even there'll be academic repercussions. You first must understand if you're going to take this route, if you feel a need, and sometimes there is a need to do this, regardless of what you're doing. Maybe you have decided that you're no longer going to pursue the sport. Maybe you're doing this because you want to ensure that your teammates or freshmen coming behind you, that they don't have to encounter these types of abuses. Maybe that's the reason that you're filing a complaint. So here's some of the recommendations that you can take for filing a complaint strategically and to the best of your interest. Understand who in the chain of the command you're speaking to. Find out if that individual is either ethically, morally, or professionally obligated to keep the conversation you're having with them confidential. Ask them about their process, what they will do after your complaint is filed. See if they have specific steps that they're going to follow. Is your complaint just going to languish on their desk? Are they just nodding their head and yesing you to death? Find out from them what they're going to do how they're going to check back in with you and give you an update on what steps have been taken. Proactive, intentional, real steps that they're going to take. For example, when we think about is the individual obligated to keep the conversation confidential and to be discreet? Are you speaking with the sports psychologist at the school who is usually bound by confidentiality? Or are you speaking with, take for instance, just another member of the athletic department? Are you going outside of the athletic department and maybe going into the administrative? So think about who that individual is, what their position is, and how they'll treat your complaint and what the follow-up steps are. Another point, when you're considering filing this formal complaint, remember that is not the time to seek kind of the public opinion and support. You do not want to wage your battle. You do not want to 
This is not the time to go onto social media to seek out sympathy from just casual onlookers, including your teammates. You will feel that you've been injured. And when you're injured, when you're hurt, you look to community to sympathize with you, to empathize with you. But right now is the time to be more strategic and to think about, I'm not going to go on social media. I'm going to go directly to the source. Here's another consideration. When you're filing that complaint for abuse, frame your complaint based on facts and your observations and your experience. Use this complaint to serve as the foundation. Make it credible. Don't just now spew. This is an emotional process. This is many times while individuals come to attorneys because you are close to what happened. The feelings are raw. The attorney can step back a little bit. They can help you frame these instances, what they happened, the time, the date, who was there, what happened, and make the complaint conform to the rules that have been broken. You'll also want to think about the transfer of your college credits and the loss of scholarships. And I know that that's going to be top of mind anytime someone is thinking about transferring. One thing that you can do is contact the school that you're wanting to go to. Understand what they will give you credits for. Understand the, the how they describe their courses and take into account your current academic program. The end result is you want to ensure that your college credits will transfer and be accepted by the transferring school. At some point in this process, you're actually going to sit down and you're going to speak directly with either the admissions office, video, in person, but you're going to want to go line by line so that you're fully aware as to what credits transfer and what will not transfer. You're going to think about, you're going to prepare When you know something, you're better prepared. You're going to think about and be prepared for a retaliation and backlash, not only by the current coach and current staff, but also by teammates. I often speak with about the fear that athletes and parents have for retaliation, for backlash, and being kept out of a sport because you're being a whistleblower. You're taking on that role to say, stop, this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable for me. It's unacceptable for my teammates. It's unacceptable for the individuals that are coming behind me. And if you want to learn more about how we can keep this discussion going, as far as being a whistleblower, as far as real steps we can take individually and collectively, on my website, I've written a piece about whistleblower laws that have been very effective in other industries and how we can use them in youth, competitive youth sports. There's no doubt that the fear that the parents and athletes that you feel are real. There's a culture of closing down and isolating athletes, isolating them in practice and training and even team events for going against the grain. This culture of fear is a weapon and it's being used effectively to keep parents and athletes silent. But what I have to say to you is that you can and you will find the relief from this unrelenting pressure and stress if you do this, if you do a complaint, if you think about it strategically and you move forward from them, from there rather. The final consideration that you'll want to think about is the transfer portal that's governed by the NCAA rule 14.5. And historically, this whole transfer process was based on a very antiquated, outdated system that was written in the 1960s. 
that requires student athletes to sit out one full academic year. And when I read this rule, it sounds nothing but punitive to the athlete and to the benefit of the institution. As recently as last week, last week for this recording, April 14th, 2021, the NCAA Division I Council approved a measure that grants all players the ability to transfer once in their career and immediately play. And at the time of this recording, we're expecting that that rule will be implemented by the NCAA Board of Directors on April 28, 2021. So we student athletes do not have to worry about sitting out if it's the first time that you've transferred or you've just transferred once in your career, you can play immediately. So these are some of the considerations. Defining and understanding the abuse, whatever form it comes in, racial, verbal, sexual harassment, understanding what you're going through, realizing that, understanding that there are steps that you can take, being strategic, being formalized about this, and understanding that there is accountability that can be had and that you don't have to sit, you don't have to work through the abuse. You want to look back on these college years fondly and you want to go forward with a solid education that you can rely on after your athletic career is over. I've enjoyed speaking with you. As always, you can reach out to me directly if you're looking to speak confidentially with an attorney. Looking forward to our next episode. Thank you again for listening. Until next time, take care. information and content in this podcast is provided for entertainment purposes only. Nothing in this podcast shall constitute legal advice and shall not create an attorney-client relationship. This information is general and may not be applicable to your particular circumstances. You should review your particular circumstances with an attorney. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast is hereby expressly disclaimed.